0: Hi, I'm Kirsten Dane, and this is my short story, Only Human. Papers spill out of my arms as the proximity sensor slides open my office door. The lights turn on to illuminate the mess in the small office I was assigned as teaching assistant. I hurry to stack them before anyone walks by. I set the tidied bundle on my desk, and my screen materializes with the load pad lit up beside it. I pick up the first essay with a red D in my writing. I let out a slow breath, put Hale's essay on the pad, and maneuver to the grading app. The grade is added automatically, and the essay uploads from the digit paper for Professor Sakura to review. I add an audio file for her ears only. Hi, Professor Sakura. We should talk with Hale again, see how he's doing coping with the workload since his mother's funeral last week. I know he wants to finish his undergrad this year, but we may have to recommend that he take more time off. One click ends the recording, and I slump in my chair. If my mother had died when I was in university rather than primary school, I wouldn't have even earned a D. I sit up straight and continue inputting the grades. Saturday morning, a knock wakes me up. I snatch a cardigan off the chair and run a hand through my short, coiled hair. I turn on the one-way viewer, opening the door. Dad? I'm too confused to return his hug. I wasn't expecting you today. He looks at my pajamas and raises an eyebrow. We planned this breakfast weeks ago, May. Did you misread the date? His lips are pursed. I blink, trying to pull up the memory of a text exchange or video call with my chip. I shake my head. Come in, I'll check my phone. When I return, my dad is on the sofa, looking out the window. I clutch the oval screen and plop down beside him, starting to scroll through our conversation. There it is, he says. I scroll back up to the message where it clearly says, How about March 27th? Followed by my agreement. How could I have missed that? Or misread it? Maybe it was misfiled or mistagged, my dad asks, bumping his shoulder against mine. I snap my eyes closed and search. After the chip surgery, everyone is taught how to search through their memories to find what has been misplaced. After several moments, I reopen my eyes. No, he asks, putting his arm around me and pulling me into a half hug. It's okay. Maybe you just forgot? I shake my head in frustration. Forgot? People with chips don't forget. He rubs my back. It's okay, Mayflower, he says. Maybe you should make an appointment with Dr. Godot. I'll go with you. I quickly do so online, two weeks away, and add a reminder on my phone with an app I've never had to use. When my dad leaves, I curl up with some tea and close my eyes, bringing forward the memory I want. The last one I have of my mom is from my 8th birthday, a little over a year after my chip surgery. My 7th birthday was spent recovering, so my parents went all out for my 8th. My cousins Stella and Sorrel were over, as was often the case back then, and we were watching old home videos of our parents as kids. Stella was 3 years older and had started knitting. She'd made me a scarf in my favorite color, coral blue. I wound it around my neck despite the midsummer heat. Sorrel, 2 years younger than me, had made a card. He'd covered it in glitter, and it had gotten everywhere. My dad made his famous creme au chocolat, and my mom braided my hair. Immersed in the memory, I can taste the dessert, feel fingers weaving through my coils, the scratch of ill-chosen yarn, hear everyone's laughter. It was great, until it wasn't. I stop the replay, tears on my cheeks. Miss Holland? My dad and I stand as Dr. Godot enters the room, tablet in hand as the door closes behind her with a soft click. They don't use personal proximity sensors in clinics and hospitals for patients' privacy. The examination room is both familiar and unsettling. I'm usually only in this room for my annual checkup, but today we're going over the brain scans taken last week. Miss Holland, she says, bringing up the first MRI image and turning her tablet to face me. The images from your scan indicate no injuries to your brain itself. She swipes to the next image. You say that you haven't had any major head injuries since you were eight, and the images support that. Your brain isn't damaged. The third image, much closer, shows my hippocampus, my chip prominent. Your chip is. What does that mean exactly, my dad asks when my own voice fails. The damage means that the chip's max capacity is approximately a sixth of what it should be. She's begun forgetting things because without a chip, her brain is only human. Remember, Dr. Godot says gently, her eyes holding mine, people lived without chips for millennia, and they got on fine. That's why I'm forgetting things, like appointments. Reaching the damaged chip's full capacity seems to have triggered something. She swipes to another scan. This image shows a high volume of activity around the chip. Not that we can access the data on it. Until you die. But we believe the memories on the chip will begin to degrade. Based on the experience of others in similar situations, it may take years, even decades, for all the memory on the chip to be lost. Lost? I ask, my voice trembling. Why can't you just redo the chip surgery and fix it? It's been 18 years since the surgery. The chip is too bonded to the brain to be removed without severely damaging the tissue. Even three years after the implant, this is the case. Our growing understanding of brain function doesn't change that. I knew that. I knew that. But three years? You mean if this had been caught when we had the accident just a year after the implant, it could have all been avoided? My dad's warm hand on my arm brings me back down to earth. These resources, Dr. Godot says, handing several booklets to me, outline some ways to reinforce memories without relying on your chip, and how to form new, lasting memories. My dad takes the booklets. I stare out the window as my dad drives me home. I wish that just replaying the memory of the accident would let us go back, fix the chip, but if that was possible, I'd undo the accident itself. It's an old thought, one I'd hoped my therapist had dispelled years ago, but I can't stop thinking about it. I avoid closing my eyes for too long for fear of bringing the memory to the forefront. I know you're not okay, but how are you feeling? I pull my gaze away from the window and look at my dad in the driver's seat to the right of me. It feels surreal. I say after a long moment, How can I just forget? He got his chip at six, too. If you want, we can visit Nan down in France in the next few weeks. She got her chip when she was older. She knows what it was like before. A weak smile comes to my lips. Sure, I'd like that. My words are cut off as the car slams on its brakes and my eyes reflexively squeeze shut. I look around at the crumpled wreck, pinned in my seat. I can feel the heat on my face from the flames outside the shattered window, can smell the smoke. I look over and know this isn't happening, not in real time, anyway. I open my eyes to loud honking and my dad, alive and well, sits where my mother did that day. If they can't drive, they shouldn't turn off auto drive, idiots, he grumbles, clutching at the safety handle with one hand, his other extended across my torso. The car starts moving on its own when it has deemed it safe to do so. Will I be relieved if that memory disappears? Three days later, my dad shows up at my flat, this time with Stella and Sorrel as backup. Dad, what are they doing here? I ask in a harsh whisper. It's not family dinner night, right? Nice to see you too, Stella says, shouldering her way inside with a large box in her arms. Sorrel follows his sister in, carrying two more boxes. Love what you've done with the place. There are open books and academic journal articles about pre-chip memories scattered across every flat surface. They're full of things I either already know or jargon I have no hope of understanding without a doctorate. My notes are everywhere. Reminders are stuck to cupboard doors and the booklets from Dr. Godot are open on the counter. Don't worry, Dad says. They're here to help. With what, Sorin? I ask, looking at him as he puts down his second box. Except this time. He looks away when I meet his gaze, but Stella's hazel eyes meet mine. Her big hair casts a silhouette on the wall. What's wrong? I ask. It's Sorrel, Mayflower, my dad says. I I'm sorry. I reach a hand up to my face. I'm crying? It was just a slip of the tongue. Stella takes my hand and pulls me to the couch between her and Sorrel. You don't have to do this alone, May. Stella takes my face in her hands and wipes my tears with her thumbs. Sorrel clears the rest of the coffee table in front of us, then takes the top off the first box and pulls a handful of papers out. You brought me pictures of mum, I say, voice cracking. Stella puts her arms around me and pulls me close. We got everyone in the family to send us their pictures of her, and we downloaded them all onto perma-paper. Sorrel spreads the pictures out on the table, then taps the oval screen of his phone and holds it out. We have digital copies, too. You don't know how much this means to me. I'm so afraid I'll forget her, I say. We won't let that happen, my dad says, squeezing my shoulder before sitting down. The memories of her laughter, of her fingers weaving through my hair, the way her hugs felt or how her perfume smelled may fade, but at least I'll never have to forget her face.